Welcome to Movie Oubliette, the film review podcast for movies that most people have mercifully forgotten. I'm Dan. And I'm Conrad. And in each episode, we drag a forsaken film out of the Oubliette. Discuss it and judge it to decide whether it should be set free. (laughs) Or whether it should be thrown back and consigned to oblivion forever. Greetings and welcome to Movie Oubliette, the Anglo-Antipodean podcast for forgotten fantastical films with me, Conrad, baking vegan scones in lockdown Cambridge, UK. And me, Dan, celebrating the end of lockdown with gelato in Melbourne, Australia. <laughs> Sounds much better. We focus on sci-fi, fantasy and horror because we love unstoppable galactic fleets with a fatal self-destruct flaw, flesh-hungry cyborgs and magic that was inside you all along. Oh, I hate that. <laughs> Hello, Dan. How Hello. are you? <laughs> Hello. I'm good. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's progressing into summer over here. It's getting warmer. So, yeah, eating that obligatory uh, ice cream oh. with friends outside of lockdown. Yeah, and gelato. Yes, yes. There's this one shop that we go to in Melbourne called The Grocer. It opens really late. You can always go there after dinner and it's, yeah, the best the best gelato in Melbourne. That's good. Well, here it's the complete opposite. It's plunging into darkness whilst being locked in your home with Mm. nowhere to go and nothing to do. Yay! Yeah. Oh, (laughs) yeah. It's it's not good, but at least, you you know, home safe and staying away from... Mouth breathers. Yes. (laughs) So, Conrad, any mailbag today from anyone else stuck at home? Yes. Well, we've got something from Isaac, our good friend, who's been on the podcast a couple of times now. Yes. Hey, Isaac. Yes. Hello, Isaac. He got in touch about our 31 Days of Horror bonus episode that was on Patreon. If you haven't heard that, head on over there. It's uh, going down well. Oh, and what did Isaac say? Well, he had loads of comments. It was almost like a a tweet along (laughs) while he's listening to it. (laughs) But I've picked out a few of my favorite bits. He says, I almost suggested the endless for one of the episodes I was on. I've got to say... I was really in the middle of the road on it. The ideas behind it are really smart and fun, but I felt like I never really got lost in it, you know? Still Mm. super interesting, and I definitely want those dudes to make more stuff. Yep, I agree, I agree. He also mentioned we have Tubi over here too, the streaming service that you were relying on for some of the titles in your 31 Days of Horror. Uh And he says, and it truly is a disaster of a streaming service. (laughs) Like, how do they even find these movies to license? I was watching a YouTuber and she was going through a, a bunch of Tubi movies that she actually would recommend. And the choices Americans have is far greater than the choices right. we, we have down in Australia. So uh, okay. I feel like we definitely got the, the short end of the stick in terms of um, <laughs> the movies. <laughs> okay, you've just got the drags over there. Okay. Yes. <laughs> 
<laughs> anyway, so Isaac says, thanks for the bonus episode. It was a really fun listen. So thanks for that, Isaac. Mm, thanks, Isaac. We also heard from Surge of Cold Crash Pictures uh, on course. Burnt Offerings. Hey, Surge. Of course. Hey, Surge. He says, I've seen Burnt Offerings twice now, and both times I couldn't dial into its specific wavelength. I don't think I experience any of the fears that it dramatises. Middle class malaise, rental properties outdoor swimming pools, etc. <laughs> Not things that keep me up at night, I guess. But I will say that I can at least appreciate its artistic intentions, the soft focus, the mercurial performances, the nihilistic ending, etc. After listening to the latest episode of Movie Oubliette, which features one of the best Bajess Meredith impressions I've ever heard. Yes, it's so <laughs> spot on. Yes, Scott Drebit, our special guest from The Daily Dead, did an amazing impression of Burgess Meredith. And actually, his Oliver Reed was pretty good too. So good, yes, yeah. Would you, would you, Marion, would you... Would you would you leave, Marion? <laughs> so good. You're not bad yourself, actually, Conrad. Uh, yeah, I got into it after a while, but only through listening to Scott's. Funnily enough. Oh, right. I yes. thought it was really good. And finally, when we were talking about Night of the Living Dead with Megan, we also put a question out on social media about what's your favourite Tony Todd character? Because he's played so many mm. great roles yes. in horror movies and sci-fi movies. Clone poster said Kern, which is Worf's brother in Star Trek The Next Generation, and I totally forgot about that role. Oh. But he is amazing as a Klingon. I don't watch Star Trek, so I can't no. relate. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, he's amazing at it. He's a really menacing and tenacious. Yeah, it's, oh. he's really good in that role. Also, Grange, was it Grange in The Crow? I forgot he was in The Crow. I saw The Crow so long ago. And I know, me too. In my teenage years, so mm. it'll be interesting to revisit that, actually. It would be, yeah, it would be. I'd forgotten he's in it, but apparently he's amazing in it, which I can easily believe. We also heard from Rowena Kirkpatrick, who said, it has to be the charismatic, hypnotic and handsome Candyman. Exquisite. Uh, yeah, he, uh, it's such an iconic character. It really is, in yeah. Horror, so amazing. Yeah, oozes hypnotic charisma in that mm. film. It's so good. And Dave C. Film Geek said, I should say Candyman, but for real, it's the mortician in Final Destination 1 and 2. And I'd forgotten about that too, but oh, that's a great role. Wow. <laughs> Again, movies I saw a long time ago, I need to revisit yeah. them. I did have fun with them. I, I love the sort of trashiness of the Final Destination movies. Yeah, I remember when I went to see the first one with my brother and afterwards we were terrified for a day or two oh. when we were turning lights switches on and plugging things into sockets we'd be checking there were no loose wires or right, we weren't yes. standing in a puddle or you know. <laughs> there wasn't some sort of uh rube goldberg contraption set up <laughs> yeah <laughs> bowling ball over our heads somewhere yeah no it did it made us really paranoid it was really good at sort of making you realize how close to death you were mm. but then as the series went on it just got ridiculous oh it? yeah it ran with it. It ran with the ridiculousness. Yeah. And it yeah, it was fun. <laughs> so yes, thanks everyone for getting in touch. Do follow us on our socials, Movie Oubliette everywhere, and uh, email us, movie.oubliette at gmail.com. We love hearing from you. 
So, Conrad, what do we have in store today? Well, let me amble on over to this oubliette and find out. Lift with the knees! <laughs> Health and safety. Oh, I seem to have fallen into a swamp. That's peculiar. And there are these weird half-man, half-robot things running towards me. Abominations. And they have shears. Okay, I've found a movie. I'm coming back. Hope you didn't get bitten by anything weird. No, fingers crossed. <laughs> what do you have? I have the 1985 animated science fiction movie Star Chaser The Legend of Orin. Mm, first animated film that we've ever discussed. Wow. We should have done one sooner than this. I we? know. I mean, could you count Mirror Mask as animated? Kind of? Yeah. I suppose it was. A lot of it was computer animation. Yeah, that's yeah. true. All right. Certainly our first traditional animation. It's yes. directed by Stephen Hahn, written by Jeffrey Scott, and starring the voices of Joe Colligan, Carmen Arganziano, Noel North, Anthony DeLongis, and Tyke Caravelli. Right. What happens in this film? Well, Star Chaser is about a young, blonde, naive boy called Orin who grew up as a slave underground where generations of humans mine crystals while being whipped with lasers by their evil robot overlords. <laughs> One day, Orin discovers a magical sword and sees a vision of an old wizard who tells him there's a world above and that if he can find the blade that goes with the sword hilt, he will find his freedom. Leaving his blind little brother behind, he sets off with his girlfriend Ilan, who's throttled to death within minutes by the evil Zygon, leader of a robot army that intends to enslave the universe. Now Orin must team up with roguish smuggler Dag Debrimi, effeminate artificial intelligence Arthur, and a stubborn princess Alviana to prevent Zygon's plot, free his people, and discover a magical force that was inside him all along. Oh, okay. <laughs> Doesn't sound like a kid's film. No, definitely isn't. I can tell you that because this is a film I watched as a child, and I'm quite excited to talk to you about it. And even more exciting, we have somebody who worked on the film to talk to in this episode. Oh yes, who's, who's that? It's the composer, Andrew Belling. So yes, stay tuned for an interview with Andrew Belling towards the end of this episode. Woohoo! Okay, we are back to talk about Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin, mm. a film I'd never seen, our first animated film to discuss on the pod. Uh, Conrad, I have to say, the start of the film was a bit of a downer. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it definitely lays out its dark credentials right at the very beginning, doesn't it? Because within three minutes, we see a person in Mind World die in a cave collapse. Four minutes later, the main female character, we think, Ilan's grandfather, is whipped to death by evil robots. And then Ilan herself, our main character's girlfriend, is throttled to death by the villain Zygon while Orin watches. Yes. So that's a bit of a slap in the face for the first 15 minutes, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And he almost loses all hope as well as he's mm. trapped in this cave that has collapsed and he's only got a drill and then he drops the drill. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, he's besieged by leeches. And then even when he gets into the outside world, he's attacked by these vicious cyborg robot monsters who want to harvest his flesh to replenish themselves. It's <laughs> pretty gruesome. Oh, those mandroids are terrifying yeah. like i can imagine every child watching this movie when it came out would have been scarred for life those mandroids are horrifying to look at because they've yeah. got their organs showing mm. their half man half robot oh i know yeah. and just the thought of being tied up and carved up and they're arguing over who gets his teeth and things it's nasty yes yes it's, um <laughs> visually very david cronenberg i think oh yeah yeah, yeah it is it is and there's that grisly last shot after all the other mandroids have been killed where the one that's left is seen slowly advancing on the bodies of his friends with a grin on his face, uh -huh. snapping together a pair of shears, thinking, now's my <laughs> chance. <laughs> no. Oh, so gruesome. Yeah. I mean, we have to, of course, talk about the fact that this movie is very influenced, inspired, or even blatant ripoff of Star Wars. Hmm. Just slightly. <laughs> yeah. So most of the characters you can compare with characters in Star Wars, you have the callow youth who comes from a manual labor kind of life, dreaming of another world, mm -hmm. who has a sword that's magical and glows when he uses it occasionally. Mm -hmm. um, Yes. And then you have the character that he meets once he escapes, who rescues him from the mandroids, Dag Dabrimi, who is a smuggler with a roguish charm. Yeah, and also <laughs> a sexual predator. Yeah, and the ship's computer, Arthur, is this prissy, effeminate, British-voiced character who's more concerned about indignities that he's suffering mm -hmm. so he's basically c-3po but the desktop version I yeah <laughs> i mean i would say there are obvious comparisons with c-3po and r2d2 mm. but in this case r2d2 is silica who was a very very sexualized mm. female robot Yes, not the movie's finest moment, I don't think. So Silica is a robot who works as an administrative underling. She's basically a secretary in the mine that Dag Debrimi is robbing at the beginning of the movie. And he grabs her, uses her as a inhuman shield, mm -hmm. takes her aboard his ship. And then when he finds out that she doesn't have a character that suits him, he tapes up her mouth, bends her over his knee, rips open her bottom and fiddles around in there and then reprograms her to be more compliant. And accidentally, she also finds him attractive and thinks that he's the only thing that matters. So, yeah. Yeah. In terms of female representation, this is not good, is it? Yeah. She's complaining the entire time. And as soon as she's reprogrammed, she's like, hey. Yeah. Has anyone told you you're awfully cute for a meat body? <laughs> it's just like, <laughs> whoa. <laughs> what? Yeah, he basically turns her into a sex slave. Yeah, and then he tries to sell her off to a slave trader. Yeah. I mean, talk about emotional abuse. I know, she really goes through the mill. And it's so bad when she even saves his life a couple of times later in the movie as well. So, <laughs> yeah, it's not good. And even the ship's computer is sexist towards her because when she's repairing the ship and trying to repair him and save everybody, he's complaining about the order that she's doing things in and says, in a minute, you're going to be putting up curtains. I mean, 
Yeah. Oh. Has not <laughs> aged well. And no. also, so many butt shots of her. Oh. Why are there so many butt shots? Mm. Just constant shots of, of a sexy robot butt. And I just <laughs> so, so startled seeing so many of them. Yeah, and there's even that scene later on where she's used as a distraction for other robots. Oh, yeah. I don't understand. Did you get that scene? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, do robots have sex with each other? (laughs) I mean, the fact that she is even a gendered robot and she is given an administration role. It just, Mm. oh, what? Why? Yeah. Another thing I found, I guess it hasn't dated so well, is... A lot of the, I guess, the villains or the baddies in this movie are ethnic Mm. or given more ethnic attributes, Um, like the smugglers in the desert. They are just, they got the bad end of the stick in terms of (laughs) how they look. They've got hair growths in the weirdest places that don't have any teeth. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of Team America World Police where he goes undercover in the Middle East and just glues random tufts of hair all over his face and just says, Durka, Durka, Durka. Yeah. no. It's not Not good. good. I'm also surprised by just how much violence is in this movie as well. Even the butler, I just didn't understand how... So the butler robot, for some reason, has a very, very powerful weapon that shoots out what looks like a lightning bolt and just <laughs> annihilates other robots. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what? It's really useful around the house, obviously. Yeah. I guess incinerating dust? Or rats? I don't know. <laughs> What's I it used for? <laughs> yeah, you wouldn't want to piss him off anyway, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. And that other scene as well with the smugglers in the desert and they almost get double-crossed by them. By, uh, they put a bomb in the chest of gold, and then they drop the bomb on top of the smugglers, and then the biggest explosion you've ever seen. <laughs> wow. It's atomic. It really is, and you would have thought they would have been more careful about the yield, because who knows where he would have parked with that thing. <laughs> I know. Would have destroyed a country. <laughs> yeah, quite possibly. Yeah, that's quite surprising, that one. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, so much violence in this film. Mm, yeah, it is a pretty violent. I mean, the not only the mandroids right at the very beginning, and the fact that the main villain throttles to death what appears to be a main character right in front of you in the first act. There's just lots of casual violence, particularly against well, not only the mandroids who, when they get shot, they explode, and it's not like Star Wars, like you know, there's a shower of sparks and people fall over. Mm. It's quite fluid and liquidy and. Mm. gross what's going on there oh the deaths of the mandroids was again just traumatizing because they Mm. they accidentally kill themselves with the invisible blade hilt sword thing Mm. and it's just it's quite hard to watch like i mean one ends up impaling itself on the sword and you just see all this blood gush out of him onto this invisible blade it's so pretty gruesome yeah I can imagine so many children scarred from that scene. (laughs) While we're talking about the sword, did you figure out how the sword works? Yeah, I don't don't know. Because you would assume, because he finds it first 
and it's a normal sword. Yeah. So it's got a metal blade, and you would assume when it disappears, it would act as a metal sword. Mm. But he somehow manages to slice through solid metal doors with it, yeah. and yeah. it looks like a, a lightsaber going through a door, like a, an energy mm. force slicing or melting a door, not a metal sword so i yeah i was very confused yeah it's some sort of magical sword where the power comes from him so they <laughs> yes. kind of establish that he needs to be holding it because when zygon takes the hilt off him towards the end of the movie and starts swiping it at him it doesn't work and yet it does work for the mandroids when he's yes. tied up and he needs them to sort of wave it around in front of the ropes to make it release him. So I don't understand. Yeah. And also <laughs> at the end as well, uh, spoilers here, he just has magical powers. Mm. And so he can cure a blind boy yes. by just touching his face. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Uh, he conjures up the sword to fight Zygon, but he's just holding energy, I guess. I mean, yeah. if he's holding it, shouldn't it be cutting him? I don't know. I, it makes no sense. Yeah, he just forms a hilt in front of his groin, and then this magical <laughs> shaft of light appears. It's all very. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> And then later on, he's offered the chance to become one of the Kakan, one of these um, non-corporeal magical figures. So sometimes they can just appear and glow around the edges like dead Jedi, strangely enough. Mm, uh, but yes. sometimes they just fly around as these glow flies with this really irritating, oscillating synthesizer <laughs> noise on the soundtrack <laughs> as they're flying around. But uh, yeah, he turns that down because he'd rather stay physical for a few decades, yeah. presumably just to bone Alviana, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess well that sexual uh, repression from being underground for so long, you know. Yeah. Although he seems quite naive about sex, actually, Orin. I remember there's that scene where after the ship has crashed and he's taken in by Alviana, the princess. She's sort of a princess Leia character. Mm. He wakes up in her bedroom and her robot butler, Mizo, is there. And Orin says, where am I? And Mizo says, you're in the most heavily guarded bedroom in this star system, so don't get any ideas. Mm -hmm. And Orin says, <laughs> ideas? About what? <laughs> so clearly the idea of being in a lady's boudoir means nothing to him. Yeah, I mean, he is pretty naive, even about robots. He doesn't even know what a robot is, <laughs> even though he's been enslaved by robots this, his, his whole entire life. life. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. There's there's even the scene where the, a patrol is coming and Dag says, oh, watch out for the patrol. And he replies by saying, what's a patrol? Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> he's not that bad, is he? Yeah, he's pretty naive. He even does that thing where he participates in an auction without really understanding how auctions work and just keeps bidding. Yeah. Completely unaware that he has to pay you for it. It reminds me of the episode of Friends where Joey's... Joey wins a yacht <laughs> because he thinks he's he's trying to guess how much it costs. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yeah. He's ridiculously innocent 
But strangely, after sort of the second act where they go on a range of strange adventures on strange alien worlds, and it becomes fairly episodic. But the third part of the movie is a straight-on sci-fi action with an alien invasion and spaceships and lasers and explosions, and it's all very exciting. Mm. And for that portion of the film, he suddenly turns into this very determined, pragmatic figure that takes charge. And he's not even following behind Dag Debrimi anymore. He's not listening to him. He's forging ahead, stabbing robots with his invisible laser sword and Mm -hmm. cutting through eight-inch steel doors and (laughs) striding down the corridor with his shoulders set forward and his fists clenched. He's a completely different guy in Act 3. Yeah, I did find him a little bit insufferable as a character because of how just completely Completely ignorant he was about everything. And just the fact that he doesn't really do a whole lot. I mean, he does activate the sword Hmm. and he gets out of tricky situations with that. But apart from that, he's not a very smart cookie. No, he's not. Everything seems to happen by accident. And maybe it's just because he's this prophesized figure. Isn't he supposed to be an ancestor of the Kakan or a... yeah reincarnated version of this guy that took down the evil Nexus robot last time it tried to take over the world. But I don't really know how that works because they kind of gloss over the history of this world. Mm, Yeah, I did like that twist, though. I mean, the two twists, I guess. The Mm. fact that Zygon is is actually a robot. Yes. And the other twist, that he was Nexus. I guess as an adult and watching mini films similar to this film. Mm. I wasn't that surprised, but <laughs> I can imagine uh, like watching it for the first time as a kid being like, whoa, that's crazy. Yeah. I don't think I was too shocked either when oh, really? part of his face was cut off and there was a metal skull underneath because, you know, I'd seen the Terminator and it, the iconography is very similar, I think. Right. Certainly yes, the yes, visual yes. design of it where you can see like a red eye glowing and you can see his metal jaw and the pistons moving as he's talking. I kind of like it, though. Mm. Although it has to be said, it is a revelation about the villain on a gantry overlooking a sharp drop, which is mm-hmm. very similar to another movie. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, even a lot of the starship battles were very similar to yeah. Star Wars. The one in the canyon. Mm. Oh, come on. Yeah. <laughs> it's exactly like Star Wars. It is. There's a few things plot-wise in this film that it's just like, oh, wow, that's very convenient. So one of them is when Oren just accidentally ejects the entire troop of robot <laughs> soldiers into space. <laughs> I mean, that's very convenient yeah, and just helps them out a lot, but just by accidentally leaning on the button. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> The other sort of very convenient moment in the film is when uh, the firefly, starfly entity thing knows the right button to push. I don't even know why that button exists. (laughs) That button, once pushed, self-destructs the entire fleet of starships. Like, why? (laughs) Yeah, it's a very sensible thing to have in your your invasion force is a destroy all button. And it doesn't even say, are you sure? Nothing. It just all goes up in smoke. Yeah, Yeah. it's amazing. Just push it and then beep, beep, beep. 
everything's Boom. gone. <laughs> All gone, yeah. <laughs> I kind of felt for Zygon at that point. It's like, oh, your plans are not going to plan at all. <laughs> no, he does get pretty pissed off at that point. I mean, he's a pretty good heavy, I think. He cuts an imposing figure. It's very muscular. I mean, he's quite a Saturday morning cartoon kind yes. of guy, though. Oh, must be said. I, if he wasn't He-Man, he would fit right in. Yeah. He's got the outfit going. He's... Barely wearing clothes, really. I would love to see a live-action version of this movie because he would look ridiculous as a villain. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure which actor would take that on. But yeah, I do like all of his speechifying, though, and his hatred of organic life and how he's desperate to destroy everything and have a world that's totally robots all the way. I think... You know, it's an interesting perspective to take, and it's kind of funny that he's just being foiled by those pesky kids every time mm, he tries yeah. to do it. Yeah, Aaron just accidentally just leaning on a button. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now it's time for random trivia. So, Conrad, I normally do trivia, but I believe you have something today. What morsel of interesting information about this film have you conjured up from your magical hilt today? Yes. So, strangely enough, Jeffrey Scott, who wrote the screenplay for Star Chaser The Legend of Orin, does have close ties with 3D, which this film was animated in. 3D, 70mm, believe it or not. Mm -hmm pretty ambitious for 1985. His father, Norman Maurer, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, was one of the two pioneers of 3D comic books where they used to have the red and green oh, glasses. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so it was him and his partner, Joe Kubert, who created the very, very first 3D comic book. And then his son ended up writing the screenplay for the very first 3D cartoon feature film. So there you go. Ah, wow. Wow. I mean, what's this film? Did you have to wear the blue and red glasses to, to watch this film? If it was 1985, I guess you would have done, because I think everything in those yeah. days used that approach. Yeah. I always found them really hard to watch. <laughs> and, and you would take them off afterwards and everything looked blue or red. Which was odd. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I don't like 3D movies. Do you get on with them? No. I've, even now, I don't get on with I them. I mean, I have glasses, so putting a pair of glasses on top of glasses mm. does not really work. So, yeah. That's our trivia. Yay. So, the visual style of this movie, mm -hmm. Stephen Hahn owned a animation outfit in South Korea because a lot of the time all of these Saturday morning cartoons they may have been designed, voiced, scripted and produced in the US but they would be shipped out to South Korea for all of the grunt work you know, mm -hmm, so they had mm -hmm. these low paid workers who were doing all of the frames and he was involved in loads of iconic uh, Saturday morning stuff that you may recognise so Alvin and the Chipmunks the Star Wars droid series, mm. the Care Bears, the real Ghostbusters, they were involved in churning out a lot of that stuff. So it's not surprising that some of the character animation in this movie looks fairly similar to your average Saturday morning cartoon. Yes, uh, 100%. I compared it a lot to um, some of the Miyazaki films that actually came out around about the same time in the mid 80s, like some mm. of his early films. It's 
totally different, completely different style. Mm. This really does have that He-Man, Thundercats look to it. Yeah. And there were sort of scenes that I thought maybe it's to do with the fact that this was animated to be as a 3D movie, mm. but some of the facial expressions looked a bit kind of warpy. Yeah. Well, I think Stephen Hahn said that they never used rotoscoping for the character animations. So oh. yeah, some of the character animations do still have that warping. But the thing that I really love is that the spaceships don't. A lot of the time you would have spaceships do flybys and manoeuvring in Saturday morning cartoons and they would all bend and change shape and crap whereas in this movie the perspective on all of the spaceships is pinpoint perfect and that's because it's all computer assisted animation Ah. which is pretty amazing for 1985 i remember as a kid seeing the trailer for star chaser the legend of orin on some vhs that i'd rented out and some of the shots in it with the star chaser flying overhead and knocking robots heads off and i was really blown out of my seat by it because it actually looked Correct, from a mm-hmm. point of view of perspective mm-hmm. and proportions. Yeah, it looked pretty incredible to me. Yeah, I think it was also aided by the uh, backdrop illustrations mm. of the city and the planets and the galaxy and stuff. They looked so good, so detailed, so full of life. Yeah, it's pretty impressive. And it's not the sort of backdrops that you would get in Star Wars, I don't think. I mean, certainly Toga Togo, the um, wretched hive of scum and villainy. No, I don't think it's cool, but I think actually it's called the thickest den of thieves. Yes. But anyway, it reminds me much more of Blade Runner, that sort of wrong side of the street, neon lit, mm. full of prostitution and so on. So it's and smugglers and yeah. fortune tellers, dodgy fortune tellers. Yeah. <laughs> and I think it's all inspired because Blade Runner, of course, Ridley Scott was inspired by the science fiction magazine Heavy Metal, oh, which okay. appeared around the same time as Star Wars, 1977. And I think it's still going now. Probably that's where the film gets a lot of its visual influences. I think it was also where it gets some of its fairly puerile and childish attitudes towards sex, because I think heavy metal Mm -hmm. had some of those aspects to it, just to sort of make it a bit more edgy, a bit more adult. But its attitude towards women, you know, it was sort of objectifying them. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did appreciate the adult themes of this film, or at least themes not really for children um, because Mm. as a man-child that will never grow up. I will forever be watching animated movies and I'm always kind of seeking out animated movies for adults and apart from, yeah, some of the very dated portrayals of Mm. females, I guess. (laughs) I like the fact that there was death. They didn't try to glaze over death at all. It was just Mm. quite a lot of death in this movie. Yeah, there was, yeah. So it was quite startling as a kid. I mean, you'd had dark animations before. I think in this country, certainly Watership Down was quite famous for that. I don't know if you've seen that. I haven't, but I know all about it. Yeah. So that animation outfit also adapted Raymond Briggs's When the Wind Blows, which is about an elderly couple trying to survive in the aftermath of a nuclear strike that's destroyed most of the UK, and you just watch them slowly die of radiation poisoning. Great. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And then you have things like Plague Dogs, which I think is the follow-up 
to Watership Down, ah, and that yes. is all about scientific experiments on animals and cruelty to animals, and it's full of death and blood and nastiness. Mm-hmm. So there was kind of this dark tinge to animation, sort of a reaction to the Walt Disneyfication of the animation scene yes. in the early '80s. That's quite fascinating, and I think this plays into that. But it's the Star Wars version of it, which is catnip. Anything that looked like Star Wars, like a space opera with spaceships and lasers, was just catnip for kids of my generation yeah yeah another adult thing i kind of liked was the swearing i was kind of surprised by that as a kid when i came across it to hear dag debrimi suddenly shout don't just sit there arthur blast those bastards (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) don't get that in star wars oh yeah yeah another aspect of the adult themes that torture scene Mm. with dag when Zygon threatens to, I guess, shoot a laser through his head, he says, try to imagine a meat hook, the thickness of a human hair, slowly thrust between your eyes and penetrating your skull. <laughs> wow. <Yeah>. Wow. <laughs> Dag Debrimi says, I'd rather not if it's all the same to you. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then that's followed by just screaming. Yeah. Oh, wow. That is another sort of traumatizing scene there. Yeah. It's basically Han Solo being tortured in The Empire Strikes Back. But at least this time you get to see what's happening to him rather than just a few sparks and then cut to outside. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Another similarity to Star Wars, but it wasn't a Star Wars movie that had come out yet. The Death of Zygon. It's very similar to the death of Darth Maul from Phantom Menace. It is. And Darth Maul's look as well, I think, is not dissimilar from Zygon. Uh And then you have things where somebody's using a lightsaber to cut through a very, very thick metal door. Yes. And then you have a robot army that's invading. And then you have a fleet of spaceships that are all (laughs) blown up and disabled by a single action being taken. Mm -hmm. And you think, hang on. Did George Lucas watch Star Chaser The Legend of Orin, possibly whilst consulting with his lawyers, and forget about it and then write the script for The Phantom Menace and copy large chunks of it? Because he thought, mm. well, you take me to court and see how well you do. <laughs> right. Yeah. There's a bit of cross-pollination going on. Maybe. Yes, I agree. <laughs> Our special guest today is an artist who's worked in every musical capacity you can imagine. As a songwriter, arranger, producer, conductor and composer, collaborating with stars from Frank Sinatra to the Sherman Brothers. And he's also the composer of the score for an animated sci-fi film I remember fondly from my childhood that marks its 35th anniversary this year, Star Chaser, The Legend of Orin. A very warm welcome to Andrew Belling. Hello, sir. Hello. Hello there. Hello. Hey, that's great. <laughs> it's wonderful to speak with you. Uh, how did you get involved in Star Chase of the Legend of Orin? What was the beginning of the story for you? Um, actually, a couple of the people that had worked on Ralph Bakshi's Wizards 10 years later moved over and they were working on the company for Star Chaser and recommended me. And I think that's how I got my first meeting with Steve Hahn and, and the, the gang at uh, Star Chaser. Was there anything in particular about the project that attracted you to it? It's very strange. For a guy that's scored two relatively iconic animated movies, I was never much of a fan of animation 
in a feature, oh. right? <laughs> but it seems my life has been tied to it. I did a series for Disney called Sing Me a Story that involved all of the, the Silly Symphony cartoons. So I can never step too far away from animation, no matter how hard I try. So <laughs> I, I went into the offices of Star Chaser in, I believe they were in Hollywood. They were nice people and, you know, they're talking about this giant sci-fi thing and it's going to be this, it's going to be that, blah, blah, blah. And would you like to see how it's done? And I said, yes, thinking, well, I've, I've seen pen and ink and I've seen, because this is back in the old days <laughs> when they were actually doing pen and ink on cells and then they'd paint them and do all that stuff. And they took me into this room and, and it had a computer. This is 1985 version of a computer. Right. And there were two plotters on a desk, you know, those big things that architects use with the, the arms with a pen on them and then they'd draw whatever. That's back in the old days. Right. So wow. they had two plotters and both plotters were drawing a spaceship. And I looked at them and I kind of went, they're slightly different. One is slightly different from the other. And they said, well, it's, we're doing this in 3D. That's the left eye, and this is the right eye. Wow. And so a lot of the uh, spaceships, the things with hard, straight edges in the film, were actually physically drawn like that. And then the, uh, the, the humans, I think, were done more by hand, directly by hand, to get all that right. It was fascinating to watch this happen. And they said, this is the first, going to be the first 3D animated feature ever done. Wow. I mean, shorter subjects had been done in 3D, but this would be the first 3D animated feature. I thought, well, well, that's cute. It's a cute little cartoon. And then he said, and it's being shot in 70 millimeters with ultimately six-track Dolby surround. Wow. My little head went, oh, yeah, <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> so that was sort of the beginning of the relationship with the folks over there. Wow. wow. That's so interesting about the 3D. That must have been so time-consuming. It was time-consuming, and back in those days, again, before all CGI and all, all of the computer stuff that they do now, Pixar and so on, you would do pencil tests of the scene. Mm -hmm. And if everybody liked the way it played, then you'd send it to ink, and then they'd ink the cells, and then if that was okay, then they'd paint them and so on and so forth. So there are two or three steps in the process to getting a finalized scene. That's in two dimension. Yeah. In three dimension, obviously, you're talking double that. Wow. Um, yes. And so it becomes a very fascinating project, especially, you know, it's easy if pen and ink is in room A and, and painting is in, in room you know, B and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. But a lot of the animation was done in South Korea. Steve Howland had a massive facility there. And so what was ever drawn in Hollywood was shipped to South Korea and then oh, shipped wow. back. And I guess this happened a lot in animation. Sometimes what you did as a pencil test, by the time it became ink, it was slightly different in timing. Uh -huh. So this came up to be, you know, the nightmare uh, when you're scoring because... When you score a film, you're scoring, you, you want to hit certain things and be exactly accurate when they happen and all that. And I had learned very much to do that from Ralph Bakshi because Wizards was one of these strange, bizarre films that constantly changed on a, on a dime. They were, you were suddenly uh -huh. here, then suddenly you were there, and it was a completely different mood and all the rest of that stuff. So <laughs> writing the score for that, I would work with what they call a final cut, 
which the word final had no business being in there. Um, <laughs> right. And when it would come time to scoring, to picture, scenes were frames shorter or frames longer. Ah, yeah, so sure. yeah. hitting all the, all the spots that you wanted to hit became kind of a, it was a game, really. And, you know, pe- right. people say to me, uh, oh, Andy, you're so patient. You know, you're so easy to get along with. You know, you don't get crazy. And I was <laughs> like, I'm remembering some of those recording sessions. You know, just, it's, I think I still have, I grew hair back because I sure tore out a lot. <laughs> <laughs> crazy yeah i was i was wondering about the process of animation and sco- scoring animation especially back then like would you get a t- like i guess a pencil version and then you would yes. score that and then they would put that in the the cut and then they would send you the final cut and then you would have to re-time things re-score things around that is that how it works there, there was the process when they'd send me a, a pencil test of a scene and i would i would check out all the timings and make sure i had those i would write the piece that would go there mm-hmm. and Wizards and, and, and Star Chaser are two completely different scores. One of the reasons doing Star Chaser was because it gave me the chance to work with a huge symphony orchestra, and Wizards was mostly mm-hmm. electronic with a couple of instruments in there. So before I would record anything, I would get a couple of different versions of the scene and retime things, and I would always ask before I go in the studio, I would say, is this the final, this is the final cut, right? <laughs> and they go, yeah, yeah. Sometimes it was. Yeah. so then were you recording to picture were you watching yes yes you were okay and would that be like a final animation or just a pencil test still Uh, you know it's it's 35 years and and i've finally been able to uncross my fingers because (laughs) that's how i go into a session Uh, right it's pretty close at that point it's pretty close but then again sometimes they made changes and sometimes it was easy to do and that happens in most features you know uh you'll be on the soundstage recording with the orchestra and the director will say oh no 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 i wanted you to hit when the door closes as opposed to when the door opens or whatever it was and right. you know, my inner voice said, "Why the? Why didn't you tell me that when I was fighting?" My outer voice said, "Oh, sure, no problem, no problem. We'll solve that." So you just run down to the stage and tell everyone to cross out bar thirty-five. Yes, that kind of thing. Yes, yeah. okay. yes, yes. So you mentioned that you were working with a large orchestra. Is, is it true that it was the London Symphony Orchestra? Is that right? Yes, yes, it was. That all came about because of my first couple of meetings with Steve Hahn, who's the producer, an amazing guy, fascinating man. And uh, as I usually would do with a film, I say, okay, what do you he- what do you hear? What do you want to hear with this? And he was very straight ahead, and he said two words to me. John Williams. Right. <laughs> and he didn't have to say much more than that. You know, I, I was like, oh, I get it. I mean, when the film came out, it got a lot of drolling because it's similar to Star Wars in some of the structure of it. You've read all that stuff. Mm. So I wanted to do uh, as much John Williams as I could without overdoing it and making people say, and, and even the composer copied John Williams, you know, blah, blah, blah. So it, I, I tried to do what I could with it. It was odd because it was a strange time in my life. I was turning 40, and this was the first time I had the opportunity to work on a score this size, right. to work with an orchestra this size, which I'd always wanted to. And I'd done, you know, cheaper films, you know. And so this was a great opportunity to do that. 
it was such a great opportunity that I have to admit, I made absolutely no money on this film because they gave me a budget. And that budget went to 90 musicians from the, the London Symphony Orchestra. Oh, the wow, recording yeah. studio in London, I think we recorded in two days with a full orchestra and then one day with, with a, shorter, a smaller orchestra. Flying to London, staying in London, all of that stuff came out of my budget. And so at, at the end, when it was like time to pay the composer, there was nothing left. <laughs> It was a gamble I took because it was a chance to do what I've always wanted to do is stand up and conduct an orchestra in a score. And they were the London Symphony, for God's sakes. It was John Williams Orchestra. When it came time to putting it on the film, they couldn't use the words London Symphony. They had to do London Studio Symphony because I think uh, there was a copyright with Deutsche Grammophon. Or I think that was their label that they were oh, on. Oh, like. okay. So that's why they, that's on there. You know. Yes, I wondered about that. Do you remember which studio you were in? I am pretty sure it was Air London. I think so. I don't remember exactly. Yeah. But it was huge. I'd done the entire score myself. A lot of composers write a score for a film and they hand it off to their orchestrator. John Williams mm-hmm. did that all the time. And, and he and his orchestrator worked brilliantly. John Williams is my god. To be honest with you, he, he just is. <laughs> yes. You know, that's he's the best film composer that ever lived. And even John does that. He does. He he would do a score as like four lines, strings, woodwinds, you know, percussion, whatever, and do that, and then hand it off to his orchestrator, and his orchestrator would write all, every single note that was played by every single person in in that room. And mm-hmm. I didn't have the money to hire an orchestrator after I paid for this huge orchestra and studio and all the rest of this stuff. So I orchestrated the entire thing myself. I studied how to do it. I'd learned how to do it. But when it came to actually writing down the notes, there's a lot of notes in this thing. You know, there's there's just a lot of notes. (laughs) And to keep it in the style, a lot of the great themes that John wrote were in 12-8. All that kind of stuff. So I had to do that, and I did that for my main title. Yes. Well, those are a lot of eighth notes or sixteenth notes to actually write. This is before I had a computer that did that. So every single one of those. So by hand. Yeah, were done by hand. Nuts. Wow. Crazy. Crazy. For ninety musicians. Yes. Yes. And every single, you know, one of them had his notes or whatever. It was bizarre. Wow. But it was fun. And again, it was saying, you know, this is your time of life to take this chance and, and do the work. You know, this is important. You have to do it. So wow. I'm, I'm wow. very, very grateful to Steve Hahn for allowing me to do it, you know, and, and suggesting it. I can now imagine you losing hair every time there was a change because <laughs> you have to notate by hand <laughs> all the changes for a full orchestra. That's Yes. Wow. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, and it's not as though it's one of those scores where it's underscore or there are patterns that are just repeating for long periods or right. there are sections of the orchestra that are all playing the same thing. It's a very intricate, boisterous, flamboyant score with lots and lots of different themes and very intricate. So uh, hats off to you because you, you, didn't, um, you didn't take any shortcuts. No, stupidly, because I didn't know that you could. You know, I, I learned that afterward, the fact, you know, talking with friends of mine who are composers, you know, who said, well, you, you repeated that section, didn't you? And go, no, 
Well, you could have put repeat <laughs> marks around it and you'd have twice the length, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so it's amazing the stuff you learn. With this score and also with Wizards as well, there is a significant amount of electronic music um, throughout. Right, right. What's, what's your sort of experience with uh, synthesizers and, and working with synths? Wizards was the first time I, I worked with synths. I found someone that was uh, a Yamaha rep ah. the first day of recording at a little studio in Hollywood called Hollywood Sound. Mm. And I walk in on, at 9... Now, I, I wrote out the entire score. I knew where everything was going to be, but smart enough to know this, this can change. You know, this, who knows what's mm. going to change. So I'm trying to thinking about this, and I, I walk into Hollywood Sound Studios, and there in the entryway are these giant wooden boxes. And I'm wondering what uh -huh. the hell this stuff is. And I walk in... <laughs> And uh, there are keyboards ah. all over in, in the studio. And these are instruments I have never seen. I have no idea what works where, what plugs in where, what all these <laughs> little knobs are. There was one that looked like, you know, like one of those old-fashioned uh, uh, phone answering machines where you plug in the, the, oh, the plugs yeah. into the like different... Oh, yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and it was stunning. You know, it was amazing. Thank God for Clark Spangler, who was my man. He was the man. And so a lot of the score would, a lot of me working on the score would be looking at the picture, looking at the at what I'd written, and then saying to Clark, okay, can you give me some sort of a kind of a sound? And he'd go, all right. And he'd, he'd try this, and then he'd try that, and then he'd try something else. And I'd go, oh, 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 that, yeah, that, that, one's, that one's perfect. So I'd play that me melody line, and then we'd go back to the beginning, and I, and I said, I'm, you know, there's the moon that comes up here. Can we? Can you give me like a whoop, whoop sort of kind of thing? <laughs> <laughs> and he'd, he'd plug this and pull this out and pull that in. That's it. That's it. That's it. And I'd play that <laughs> that line. So that's kind of how the score happened and came together. A quick side story. They had the first screening of Wizards at 20th Century Fox for everybody. The film was finally finished and everybody on the, on the lot was great about it. They had no animation department at 20th Century Fox at all, so they didn't know how to handle the film, which was interesting. And they had no idea it was going to be what it turned out to be uh, historically. But they had a screening. Yeah. And at the end of the screening, I'm, I, I still wasn't sure that the music was right for it and that I had made some right decisions, you know. You know, it's, 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 it was okay. When people would walk up to me, I'd get ready to kind of either defend myself or, or uh, offer something. <laughs> oh, yes. But um, this, this guy walked up to me, a, a guy with glasses, and um, he, uh, he shook my hand and he said, what were the synths that you used on this sequence? And I said, oh, it was, I knew them then. And I said, was this and that and the other thing? He said, oh, those are really good. I like those. He said, oh, by the way, my name's John Williams. And I said, oh, John, what, John Williams? <laughs> wow. <laughs> lost, lost in space, John Williams? He goes, yes. And I said, oh, my God. Oh, my God. You, you are amazing. You are wonderful. I said, what, what are you working on now? And he said, oh, a little grade B science fiction film in England called Star Wars. Probably won't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> I wished him well, but he, but he was lovely. I mean, he was absolutely. And the rest is history. Yes, the rest is history. And I wish you guys well, and you'll have a wonderful. Your, your lives will be wonderful after this. <laughs>
Well, thank you so much for talking to us today about Star Chaser and for sharing so many wonderful memories of it. I'm sure our listeners will really enjoy listening to it. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me. I, I really appreciate it. And you guys are great. I hope we get a chance at some point to meet. It would be really wonderful. Yes. Mm. Yes. When this COVID craziness yes. is over and done with. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Thanks again. And bye for now. Thank you so much. Bye bye. Cheers. Cheers. Coming to you live from the Movie Oubliette Theatre, it's the prestigious Mobley Awards. It's the Mobley Awards. It's where we mine our favourite energy crystal parts of the film in the number of magical soul sword slicing categories. Best quote. I said before I love Zygon speechifying. He has many great speeches. But I think my absolute favorite is thousands of years ago on some obscure planet, a primitive chess computer was the first inorganic mind to beat man. In a few hours, I will be calling checkmate in the last such game the humans and their kind will ever play. Oh, wow. How poetic. Yeah. And I just love the earth burn that goes in there as well. <laughs> it's like some obscure planet. It's obviously us. But yeah, we're a footnote in history, mm. according to Zygon or Nexus, <laughs> whatever he is. <laughs> My favorite quote, probably not as profound, but it's when uh, one of the human miners uh, is trying to warn Oren, never dig up. Up is hell. <laughs> I mean, if I got told anything was hell, I would never do that. So, <laughs> Yeah, well, they have all stuck to their guns and just carried on digging all these years and dying and being yeah. laser whipped and to death. never so. questioned. That's what happens to you if you live in a media bubble, you see. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Best hair or costume? I think it would be obvious to nominate Zygon because, yeah, he just looked very fabulous. But I really liked um, <laughs> Aviana in that scene where she rides up on the horse and she almost looks oh, yeah. like Spartan in how she's um, presented. She has like a white dress slash tunic underneath with like a golden breastplate and this very Spartan looking golden helmet. I thought it looked really cool. Yeah, and does isn't she got a falcon as well or something? Yeah, she does, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, that's cool, yeah. How about you? I was going to say Zygon because <laughs> I just love his look. Mm -hmm. The extreme receding hairline with fulsome black hair on the back of his head, the impractical red and black dominatrix costume with enormous shoulder pads. And what I love about it is... At the bottom half, he's just got these two strips of red cloth that are sort of like floor-length tea towels mm -hmm. tucked into a waistband. So he's showing a lot of thigh. Oh, and you think, so if he leg. falls over, <laughs> he's going to be mooning everywhere. It's just, it's a pretty risky costume. So as you said in our main discussion, if it were played in real life by a real-life actor, they'd, yeah, they'd be nervous the whole time they were on set, definitely. Yeah. Most 80s moment. Well, following on from Zygon, I have to say, muscly men in skimpy costumes yeah. in a cartoon, oh, yes. I think is very 80s. I'm thinking of Thundercats, He-Man, G.I. Joe. Yeah, it does feel like <laughs> the most 80s thing in this movie. Right, yes, yes. I would agree, but I would also add the fact that 80s, for some reason, was obsessed with 
robotics. Hmm. There's so many movies, like Terminator, Robocop. But if you think of cartoons, there was The Mask, Transformers, Robotech, oh, yeah. Centurions, Voltron. <laughs> Especially kind of hybrid robotics as well, like with, with Centurion. And, and this movie, like things that were half human, half robot. Mm. But yeah, very popular topic in the 80s. Yeah, we were really worried about robots taking over the world I back know. then. No. Yeah. No mention yeah. of viruses. No. <laughs> no. Little did we know. Yeah. <laughs> Favorite scene. I guess the last big starship battle indoor space battle which was interesting as well the fact that they were sort of yeah. inside a space station and flying around and destroying robots and stuff mm. pretty action-packed and a lot going on a lot of explosions and two ships as well flying around and a track tractor beam why not oh yeah Just throw in a tractor you've beam. gotta have a tractor beam yeah <laughs> how about you Conrad? <laughs> favorite scene well you've mentioned it already actually it's the scene where orin accidentally shoulders a button and ejects a whole army into space mm-hmm. i just love that whole sequence it's just really where they're sneaking around the flagship and they open a door and then they find a whole army with tanks and they <laughs> just quickly close the door and then the army's shooting at the door and it's slowly heating up with the lasers heating and it's melting and then they accidentally press the button and all of the guys just lift up in one group and they're all screaming and then they float out and start hitting the windscreen of another ship that's behind them. I love that as well because (laughs) it shows the the other robots in in that spaceship just seeing these floating robots just slowly thud against the windscreen. (laughs) so comical. It's great. Most cliché sci-fi moment. My favourite sci-fi cliché in this movie is using random scientific words to make things sound more science fiction oh, yes. when they don't actually make sense. So, you know, saying it made the Kessel run in 12 parsecs or whatever, and then you find out parsecs is a distance rather than a measure of time. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That kind of fuck up. So in this movie, <laughs> at one point, they refer to xenon warheads which sounds impressive, you know, and it's got an X in it, yeah, Xenon. of course. But actually, Xenon is a noble gas, so it's unlikely to be useful in weapons. It doesn't react to anything. Oh, right. <laughs> so I think it's occasionally used as an anaesthetic or something. It's not going to be very effective as a warhead. Uh-huh. So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> but it's got an X in it, Xenon. Yeah, I mean, sci-fi, <laughs> you have to put an X. Yeah, or a Z, one of the two. Both if you can. Yeah. <laughs> I, I Maybe it's not a sci-fi cliche, but getting out of impossible situations mm. with, with the help of some sort of creature. So I, in this case, mm. the, the star flies or whatever they're called. So he, he's like, I need the hilt. And so it just buzzes off and gets the hilt for him. I don't know how it holds yeah. the hilt when it's a light I, I, i'm not it, sure yeah but also in it the, does struggle it bumps into something yeah like that. that's true and also <laughs> obviously uh, i mentioned before the scene where it knows exactly the right button to push to blow up every mm. single ship um yeah. <laughs> so yeah that that sort of cliche using a creature or entity to get out of impossible situations 
Yeah, always happens. Best special effect. For me, I think it is the Invisible Blade. Oh, and, right. And okay. Specifically, the Mandroid sequence. I think it is the scene where the blood seeps out and starts to pour down this Invisible Blade yeah. and sort of conform to the shape that you can't see. Mm. And even as the Mandroid rolls over and falls down, the hilt stays in the right position relative to where it would be on top of this blade. I, I don't know. I just thought that was really cool. Although the spaceships are probably a very, very strong runner-up. I love the spaceships. Yeah, the spaceships were great. I Actually, my uh, favorite effect was when the spaceships went into light speed. I know it's, it's probably blatant ripoff of Star Wars slash Star Trek. Mm. The light trails looked really cool. And when they would zip yeah. away and then when they were arriving, there was still that sort of light trail behind them. And maybe not so much of an impressive sound effect because it, when they arrived, it was like a zip yeah. sound. Like, yeah. <laughs> is that the sound of a huge spaceship arriving? <laughs> Favorite sound effect. Well, I've almost mentioned it already, but it's the scene where the robots are hitting the windscreen and there's that lovely, dull, metallic clunking oh, noise from the other sound. side of the glass. Yeah. I love that noise. It's so perfect and so funny. <laughs> yeah, you just want that sort of glass sliding sound oh, yeah. sometimes, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and that would have been great. Yeah. My favorite sound effect. Uh, so it's a sound that I would like explained, actually. So it's every mm. time the spaceship, so the Star Chaser, the, the, the goodies spaceship, um, every time it seemed to land, take off, reverse thrust, and there's even one scene where he just pushes a button and it makes that sound. And I, I, can't, I can't really even replicate it. And with my voice but it's like a sound i don't i don't know what it is but i don't really understand where it's coming from as well because it's been used in different situations whenever i hear it so yeah and it's a sound that i'm i've heard somewhere whether it's star wars or star trek i've heard somewhere else yeah most funniest moment well you already said it it's this it's a scene with the robots in space just slowly hitting the windscreen. <laughs> it's so funny. It's hilarious. <laughs> yeah, it is good. My favourite is another robot scene, which is where the starfly flies into the head of a robot oh, and then it yeah. <laughs> blows its own head off <laughs> trying to get rid of it. <laughs> that was actually my runner-up for sound as well because I love the echoing metallic sound as it's rattling around. Oh, in there. <laughs> right. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. And that's our move, please. Mm. Hey, it's final verdict time. Should Star Chaser, the legend of Orin, be freed, unleashed into the world to carry out its robotic galactic conquering endeavors, or should it be enslaved and whipped blind with a laser whip <laughs> and thrown down into the depths of the deepest chasms of the Oubliette? Mm. Conrad, childhood 
film of yours. What were your thoughts? Yeah, it's it's one of those VHS videos that I went back to. It's pretty trashy, but I mean, it's it's got spaceships and lasers and robots and explosions and a hero that saves the day. So as a kid, it was just catnip to me and I loved it. Looking back at it now, I think it's impressive visually. I think the uh, fledgling computer-aided design of the ships is amazing and the way they did it with the two plotters i thought yeah just incredible the way that they did that Mm -hmm. that certainly the third act of it is really exciting as a space adventure some of the aspects of it are not great when you look back at it certainly his treatment of race and female representation is not good Mm, but i still think it's a good time i mean i i still like watching it when it came out on dvd i watched it again and i was very excited to hear from andy belling that the film is available on amazon prime in 5.1 in america so Uh yeah i I would still recommend that people check it out i think it's pretty fun what what do you think yeah i think it you can criticize this film you can criticize every inch of this film like it hasn't aged well Mm. in many respects and the fact that it is a ripoff of Star Wars oh, is, you know, it's, it's a bit problematic. But <laughs> if you kind of approach this film without Star Wars in mind and just watch it as an adventure, sci-fi, um, in space with robots and lasers and weird alien planets, it is a fun ride. Mm. I think young people would really enjoy it. I did appreciate the, the adult themes and... For me, I'm always looking for animation for adults. And yeah, I don't know. Like I, every part of me wants to say that this movie <laughs> is bad, but I still had fun with it. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I would actually release this film. Yay. Yeah, I mean, I think it's what we're looking for. It's a gem of a movie that... It's fascinating. If you've never heard of it before and you didn't know it existed and you hadn't watched it before, I think it would surprise you in a lot of ways. And I think you'd get a lot out of it. So, yeah. And I do have to mention, I love the music. Yes. I love the the funky synth stuff. I love the uh, orchestral Mm. Star (laughs) Wars-esque John Williams-inspired music as well. I think it just sounds great. It does, yeah. I think our special guest, Andrew Belling, did a fantastic job with the score. So, And it was great to talk to him too. So, Yes. Yeah. Okay. Release. Off you go. Find the blade. <laughs> oh, look at it going up into the stars. <laughs> Speaking of stars and, and starry nights, it's, uh, it's coming towards that time, isn't it, Conrad? It is, yes. It's time for us to plan for our festive Christmas episode, which will be our last episode for the year. And what movie will we be doing? Well, we'll be going back to the 80s for a seasonal magical movie called... <laughs> One Magic Christmas. Oh, I've never seen this movie. I've never actually heard of it. No, it's a Disney movie that was made in 1985. It's an American-Canadian co-production directed by Philip Borsos, or Borsos, I'm not sure how to pronounce it. And it stars Mary Steenburgen, Gary Basaraba, Harry Dean Stanton, Elizabeth Arnua, Elias Katias, and a very, very young Sarah Polly. 
in her first role. Ooh, is it going to be an 80s family good time, wholesome Christmas movie? <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually one that I remember quite distinctly because it <laughs> it's quite dark, actually. Oh. It's from Disney's famous dark period in the 80s when it was doing things like Watcher in the Woods and The Black Cauldron and Something Wicked This Way Comes. Yeah, so it's, right. it's dark, Disney. It's a bit of a family drama, but with some magic and angels sprinkled in. So, yeah, looking forward to sharing that one with you. Great. <laughs> Can't wait to drink some eggnog and pour over it. <laughs> yeah. It's on Disney Plus if you want to watch along, people. So do get in touch and tell us what you think about the movie. If you've got any other ideas for Christmas movies that we should watch, we're Movie Oubliette on all socials, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. And you can also send us a very long email if you would like at movie.oubliette <laughs> at gmail.com. And if you'd like to sponsor us, head on over to Patreon, where for as little as a dollar you can nominate movies that we can cover in future episodes. And for $5, you get access to all of our Brucey bonus exclusive extended material, including an extended version of our interview with Andrew Belling today. Mm. And the 31 Days of Horror episode that mm. uh, we talk about going through. The, all the movies that I watched and whether I like them or not, it's great. Yes, <laughs> it is. It's really good fun. I found it fascinating. And I didn't have to do any research for it, so I was, I was really happy. You just had to <laughs> sit back and relax. Yes. <laughs> so thanks, everyone, for joining us today. And, uh, yeah, look forward to Christmas. Yay! We're all stuck inside. <laughs> <laughs> Bye for now. Goodbye. Bye.